Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. My name is Riley Risto, and I'm here with Christopher Hurtado, my co-host. How you doing, Chris? Hello. Good to be with you. You too. Uh, today, we are going to be tackling, man, this, this is going to be a deep and, um, hmm, I guess this confusion I have with talking about it is, is going to be manifest throughout this conversation because it's, it's complicated, but we're going to be talking a little bit about faith transition, faith crisis. It comes in uh, many names and there's many, many ways to express it, but we're going to be talking about that as a topic today. So, We've we've talked about this. We've hinted around it before. We've had Jana Johnson Spangler on the episode in the pa- on the uh, on the show in the past, right? To do an episode with this, and she did an excellent job. That's her specialty. But the difference between that and what we're doing today is that we have our co-founder Shiloh Logan with us. He he helped establish the Latter Day Contemplation podcast. He was uh, a founder of Latter Day Peace Studies and is still heavily involved with that, but we've got Shiloh on the show to talk to us about his faith transition. So Shiloh, welcome to the program. Glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me on. It's good to be back. Absolutely. (laughs) We've been talking about doing this show now for about the past, I guess we had kind of a group conversation. What was it? About a month and a half, two months ago, something like that. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's been a little bit of time. And and during that conversation, Shiloh, you um, told us that you had decided to resign from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and that uh, your family had, had gone with you. And I don't know that it was necessarily shocking for any of us because many of us are experienced in the church. We've seen people kind of come and go and make decisions about their spirituality and, and religion. And so I, I wouldn't say it was shocking for us, but it, it certainly caused— in us, uh, a sense of not not even confusion. I'm not sure what to say. What do you What do you think, Christopher? How did you feel about it? Yeah, I was thinking, well, what do we do now with Latter Day Peace Studies? Yeah, is it this is Latter Day Peace Studies, and Shiloh's no longer a Latter Day Saint. Now what? <laughs> yeah, can we call that uncertainty? Maybe <laughs> anxiety. I don't know. Anxiety. Okay. Yeah. And and mostly, I think the 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 anxiety was not around our relationship with uh, with Shiloh, any of us at Latter-day Peace Studies, it was about PR, right? I mean, sort of. Yeah. I mean, it, definitely perception. Right. You know, we, we, have a, we have a listenership and audience online and on our podcasts. And it was always like, ah, oh, what are they going to think, you know? Because, um, because Shiloh's not going anywhere. Right. Yeah, right? yeah, no. He, he's with us. Yeah. Well, and professionally, he's not going anywhere either, right? Shiloh, what are you studying these days? (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, it's it's always a it's always a crapshoot about what I'm uh, what I'm studying. But right now, I'm a, a PhD student at Claremont Graduate University, and I am studying religion and specifically North American religious history. And more narrowly, I am heavily involved with the Mormon Studies program there at Claremont, and so I'm I'm heavily engaged in all conversations Mormon. And when I say Mormon, you know, it's it's important because. It's not just the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it's the sacred canopy that comes about everything from Joseph Smith onward. So there's there's Brigham who leaves with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then there's the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ, which is now the Community of Christ, and the Strangites, the Fundamentalists. It, it, it's a broad canopy. And so that, that has been deemed in, in historian circles as Mormonism. And so it's the conversation of Mormonism that envelops the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it's it's all things Mormon, so... Gotcha. So you're not going anywhere was the point. And and you're going to be in this world for the better part of the next decade, at least, if all things go well and according to plan. Isn't that right? Yeah. So I am, as I said, I'm, I'm a PhD student. I have one more year of coursework and then I do all of my exams. And so that'll be probably another year <laughs> in, in that. And then they, they tell you that you're all but dissertation, which, you know, or ABD. And then at that point, you get to start writing your dissertation. And and nobody ever starts writing their dissertation. And that's really where your reading begins. And so you read for a year, maybe two years, maybe three. Then you end up writing for another year or two years, you know, however long it's going to take you to write that dissertation. And then within, but so I'm at least into it three years into my into my PhD. And, and, and that's if I'm just hitting every benchmark perfectly. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I really hope so. But then after that, you're if, keeping your grades up, aren't you? Oh, absolutely, keeping it up. Um, you know, got a four zero, so I'm, I'm doing doing okay with my grades. All right. <laughs> and so when, uh, so when we go from that point to get hired on to teach at a university, then they want you to publish within two years, two three years, the uh, your dissertation into a book. And so the, you know, then I'm going to be involved in that conversation again. My dissertation right now is looking like it's going to focus on Christian nationalism and Mormon nationalism in the 20th century. And, and so the, for, that'll be the next, the next six years. And then they usually want you to publish a second book, usually within the same genre within the next five years. And so I'm, I'm going to be in this for a while. I'm going to be in this conversation for a long time. So even though I formally resigned from the church, uh, I'm going to be in this conversation for a very long time. Well, let's, let's take it back a little bit, Shiloh, to that, to that conversation again. I, I think it was sometime in November. You know, back then, um, that that was a, a solid hour and a half or so on the phone with each other. And there was a group of, I don't know, seven or eight of us, I guess, at the time, those who are kind of intrinsically involved um, with Latter-day Peace Studies, talking through how best to navigate these waters. And the reason why I want to go back there is because it's sort of microcosm of how all of our loved ones and friends who decide to make this decision and, and, and exit the church how how they navigate it with their families and friends and how we navigate it and like and I loved what Chris said earlier there was never any sort of question about whether you are our friend and we love you there that was like off the table you know um there might have been some like emotional exchanges which are healthy you know to kind of really uh sift out some some emotions and some ideas and thoughts and that's all fine and good, but no one ever questioned the fact that, that we love you. And I think that's important. And we're going to circle back around to that. But before we do that, Shiloh, why don't, I mean, we've, we've now kind of done the preface prologue here for the first, I don't know, eight minutes or so. Why don't you tell us why? 
Tell us about your journey. <laughs> yeah, try to condense that down to the to the podcast and not uh, yeah, run away yeah. with a monologue. Five right? minutes max. Five minutes, right? Yeah, yeah try to do that. <laughs> so yeah, so back in November, my my family and I formally resigned, and then we got our confirmation letter right around the first or just before the first of December, and it was the right choice for our family. And it's like, well, what led you to that? What led you to that point? If you know, if I would have had a conversation with myself five years ago. This is this is not where I would ever have imagined I would be, right? And and yet I haven't been sitting with this much peace in any recent memory. And so it's it's a really interesting experience because over the last 20 years I've been on the other side of this conversation. I've been on the conversation where my close friends and where associates have resigned or have have gone beyond the church and have and have walked their own journey. And the feelings that arise in those moments of confusion, of Christopher, you said anxiety. I think betrayal is is a really key word. I think I think we have to be honest with ourselves in saying that betrayal is a very real emotion in these experiences, and it's a it's a legitimate emotion because of how we function as human beings in in a sense of tribe. You know, I was having a, a conversation with a good friend uh, even today, talking about how when someone from our tribe leaves. There's this feeling that we have that someone has is rejecting us because we have shared identity with this group. And as they leave that group, it's almost and it's like they've rejected the group. And by rejecting the group, they've rejected the things that have that I've you know that I've been connected with that group before. And so there's a, this sense of betrayal and of rejection. And so yeah, it's really difficult. So how do I tell a story about my own journey? to be able to to come to that end to talk about that betrayal and, and and to lead to that kind of understanding, especially for those who have known me personally, who may be finding out for the first time, I've really done the best I can to talk with so many people about this. But there's going to be a lot of people who I haven't talked to who's going to be listening to this for the first time and being very surprised. And And I know there will be feelings of hurt and betrayal. And so how do I tell this story without getting into a narrative fallacy and thinking that uh, just by telling the story, it, it answers. But I think in short, if, if I go back to where, where I started, for me, it, it began largely with the conversation of nonviolence. Now we know with Latter-day Peace studies, we study a lot about nonviolence with this. That was really one of the central features that even ended up creating this whole thing. And in really getting down into nonviolence, I got into Christian nonviolence, and by getting into Christian nonviolence, you can't help but then get into like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and then go back to the old Christian martyrs. Then you get into the Leo Tolstoy's, and you get into the theologies and the doctrines and the ideas and the theories. And I searched really heavily to try to find that in my own belief tradition. And come to find out on social media, nonviolence is not a popular thing. <laughs> It's not a popular thing to talk about at all. It's, it's one of those things that people have a really strong opinion about, even if they've never really been confronted with this topic. And so on social media, as I talked about this quite a bit, especially within these Latter-day Saint communities, I started getting a lot of pushback. And the pushback, I was really fascinated that, the, that the, some themes begin to emerge in that pushback about church history. And so as people would push back against that nonviolence narrative, they would use church history and or biblical or or scriptural history, right? Yeah. So Book of Mormon would get into that too, right? So you get up a lot of lot of Book of Mormon stories, the war chapters, Nephi killing Laban, 
You know, you end up with Old Testament stories, New Testament, you know, different readings about how Jesus responded with things with the sword. And so, yeah, there's a lot of scriptures that get into that and, and the response. But one of the predominant themes that were get kept on being brought up was church history and how it responded with government. And that fascinated me to, to that that was a response to be able to to fight against nonviolence was the church's doctrinal history and how it entwined with the government narrative. And that's what initially, when I got into graduate school in history, that informed my desire to study Christian nationalism and Mormon nationalism in the 19th century. And that's when I started getting into how identity is created. How do, how do we create national identity? How do we create religious identity? How did, we, how did the Latter-day Saints entwine their civic and their religious identities? And how was that in America? How was that uniquely done in the American landscape? And once I got into understanding how that kind of narrative and identity is created and meaning, and so I got into meaning, and that's really what sparked my, what I call my crisis of meaning. You know, we were going to talk a little bit, I know we're going to probably talk a lot about crisis of faith here towards the end, but one of the things that I, what I had was what I call a crisis of meaning. And we can get into that a little bit. And I, we've talked about this before on some of the episodes that we've co-hosted about meaning and narrative and story and what that means. Well, and Shiloh, I'll just interject by saying this is not a, this is not a Mormon experience. This is not a Latter-day Saint experience. The crisis of meaning is something being identified by academics, by sociologists, by psychotherapists, by psychologists. You know, meaning crisis is a worldwide phenomenon right now. Yeah, it is. And and luckily, my experience there were a lot of a lot of friends, a lot of associates, a lot of uh, a lot of connections on social media that I was able to pull from that gave me resources to study and to really push my way through it. But it was a really serious four years of this this crisis of finding the meaning and the identity and really trying to double down on my belief tradition to give me that rich meaning, to give me that kind of connection. And there was a friend at one point on uh, a good close friend uh, who had posted on social media saying something to the effect that I do really good in talking about God, but he questioned how much I actually experienced God. And I don't know what it was about that that one statement at that one time, but it hit me. It was like I ran into a brick wall. And I realized that for all the talking about God that I ever did and the hypothesizing and the theorizing and the arguing about who and what God was and, and how I was emotionally connected to my idea of God, I I couldn't really say that I truly experienced that awe of God that I'd heard about. And, and that was a really hard pill for me to swallow. And so... That was at the same time when I was having this crisis of meaning when I came into this this awareness that my political identity, my nationalism, and, and the books that have been written about how to establish national identity and how to establish this connection with society and the state was exactly the same way that I established my religious identity. And by no small part, that had to deal with how myth and story and narrative and meaning all create identity and how we tell our stories and how those ways we tell our stories give us the emotional connection to our communities and how we build communities around those stories. And we've talked about this a lot, even on this podcast. And we've had lots of conversations offline too. Yeah, right. And so this is, this has completely engulfed my, my experience for the last, at least the last five years. And this is when I started getting into the Beatitudes. And so just before COVID, I get, you know, I'm already heavily engaged in the Sermon on the Mount because of the nonviolent stuff. 
But then I start really getting into the Beatitudes by every single book I can possibly find on the Beatitudes. Like I drained Amazon clean from any book referencing the Beatitudes. I ordered them all. I've never seen so many books on the Beatitudes as on, <laughs> uh, as on Shiloh's bookshelves. Right. I, I, and I just, I, I just, uh, I wanted to just soak it all in. And one of the things that stood out over all of these books was this idea of that poverty of spirit that we've talked about so often. That emptying, that divesting ourselves of these these identities of this earth and the meaning of those identities. Yeah, we've had many conversations on this one singular idea of emptying that is actually talked about in the New Testament as describing Jesus uh, himself. And, and so, I, I guess what I want, what I'd like to do, at least at this moment right now, I'm not going to stop you from from telling your experience, but I want to interject here because I think it's important to note that. For those listening in our audience who not only consider themselves faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but want to remain such, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Shiloh, but I don't think what you're describing here is a cautionary tale of how not to stay faithful to the Church, right? I wanted to say something about that too. I thought, no, so far we have that if you uh, if you become not if you study the attitudes, <laughs> if you study nonviolence <laughs> and the Sermon on the Mount, that you will leave the church. <laughs> right. Oh, nonviolence? Yeah, peace. Yeah, you're gone. Uh, if you start talking about the emptying that described Jesus Himself, mysticism. Oh yeah, it's just a matter of time for you. Mysticism. Oh we're, yeah, we're you're describing gone. Shiloh's mysticism too, right? So I, I guess the only thing I want to highlight is that, you know, the effect this has on people and the approach they take to this varies by the individual. And, and so what you're describing is your unique path. Am, am I correct in this? Please correct me if I'm wrong in any of this uh, supposition. That is absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. In fact, I, I'll even reference again and again, Patrick Mason and David Pulsifer, they just published with, with Deseret Book in connection with the Maxwell Institute at BYU, uh, the book Proclaim Peace, which is a nonviolent treatment of the Book of Mormon and of the theory of nonviolence within the church. I've been waiting for that book to come out for like five years. They've been writing it for 10, right? And and so, yeah, Patrick Mason, we're talking powerhouses in in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints history. He's he's up in the history at the Utah State. Uh, Dr. Pulsifer talks, or he teaches up at BYU-Idaho. And so we're talking about very, very powerful, notable Latter-day Saints, faithful Latter-day Saints, who are talking about nonviolence in the Book of Mormon, in in the Latter-day Saint tradition and theology, who are bringing these themes out. And so, yeah, to say that nonviolence is, will lead you away from the church is nonsensical. It's it's there's not a there's not a logical correlation path that that, that this is talking about, right? Now, what about the, the Sermon on the Mount, Shiloh? <laughs> well, the same thing. If you even if you read if you read their book, they even bring this out, right? They talk heavily on the Sermon. I on think the Mount. you mean the Sermon on the Temple, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sermon at the temple is what we call that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Sermon on the Hill. <laughs> the Sermon on the Hill, the Sermon on the Temple. Yeah, whether you're Matthew or Luke or Nephi, whatever one you're going to read. But but in this way, when, when I got into the Beatitudes, I started getting into this whole divesting of identity, and this really landed for me powerfully because of the crisis of meaning I was having. So this new conversation of the Beatitudes and letting go of all of these harmful identities that I'd carried with me through my whole life. Now, one of the things that I, I don't talk a lot about, and because it's very personal to me, is that for a good 10, 15 years, I suffered through what I would talk about as a, a loss of hope. It's like my faith was not 
My faith was not in question. I loved everybody. So it's like that faith, love, and charity, or, or, you know, you have faith, hope, and charity. My faith was intact. My charity was intact, but I felt like I lost my hope and I didn't know how to get it back. And what I found over this beatitude process was that as I, as I emptied out from these harmful narratives and identities, I found hope. What are the harmful narratives uh, and identities, Shiloh? They were just highly personal things, things that if I were to talk about, people are like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But it just because they're so subjective, the narratives and the stories and the identities that we hold about ourselves, that voice that's inside of our head that tells us that we're not good. If anybody knows what imposter syndrome is, that you know, you don't believe that you really belong in a particular situation because you're not as good as everybody else around you, that you're just imposing there. And as soon as people find you out, then you're going to be kicked out of the group because they're going to finally figure out. Like I have insane imposter syndrome, or I did. But even going through the beatitude process, I, I, I don't have that anxiety anymore, right? And so there's a lot of these identities. There's layers and layers and layers, and we could have hours of conversation upon those kinds of things that I, I, I divested myself from. And then over time with the beatitudes, Chris, I, I, I don't remember which one of you, which one of you recorded. I was going to look up upon when we talked about meekness. Oh yeah, you co-hosted on this podcast on meekness, and I don't remember whether it was with me or with Riley. Right. And I was talking with was you it earlier. With me? I think it was with me. And and meekness is when we talked about meekness, it's this state place and state of mind and being that once you've divested yourself of all of the identities and the connections of life, and you stand there in that nothingness, there's that mourning period of that loss of identity. But once you realize that you're no longer connected to anything in the in the identities of the earth, you you don't belong anywhere. And because you don't belong anywhere, there's this universal paradox it seems to be that when you belong nowhere suddenly you belong everywhere and yeah. it's it's really in that meekness that you know to riley's question and to kind of give a second answer to riley's question it's when i recognized that i i can be anywhere i i could stay in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints i could go to a different church and so th- that was my own personal journey and then there were just there were now, my own family, my wife has been going through her own journey, and so in our our family had resigned and i re- I realize that i'm in a very I'm in a very unique position because I know a lot of people who are in the same position that I am people who've messaged me on the side who have said man just just your story and talking about this has brought me a lot of hope because i'm I'm having a lot of doubts and or I left the church or something I haven't told anybody but my my spouse has stayed in the church and so they're having to deal with mixed faith marriages and I know that's so difficult and 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 the love and respect I have for both of those spouses to make that work because I know the difficulty there and so my kind of unique privilege in this is that my wife had her, her own very unique experience. Her experience and her what we might call deconstruction and, and how she came to it and how it affected her was completely different than mine. And in fact, even within the last year, there are things about her experience that I didn't even understand that as soon as it like it, I became aware of it, like it almost brought me to my knees because I was like, I didn't know you were suffering like this. I, I like I rationally got it, but it didn't hit me in my like it, it didn't like sink into me yet. And as soon as I like saw it from her perspective, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm sorry I haven't been there to support you because I haven't I didn't get it. And and I got it now. And so then at that point it became a different way of kind of a different way of showing up. And and so anyway, we we've stumbled, we've done our thing, and and we finally 
we came to this moment when through a, a whole bunch of um, circumstances, it was one of those things that we knew that was right for our family to be able to to resign. But that also leads me to to some really kind of core principles that I want to talk about as far as what this means for me personally, because I know there's going to be a lot of people who know me personally, friends, family who who listen to this, and also what this means for Latter-day Peace Studies and setting a narrative for Latter-day Peace Studies, because like we talked about at the beginning, to be involved in this project, when someone leaves your tribe, especially with how the narrative works in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when you leave the tribe, there's a lot of, you know, we talked about anxiety and and betrayal and and there's like this fear of rejection. And so those would be some good things to talk about. You know, one of the things that came out of that discussion back in the end of November was that there's a there's a pretty clear difference between someone who comes into the church who doesn't yet either understand, know, or even believe the things that the other members of the tribe believe, that kind of person, and the kind that that leaves the church but still retains maybe a lot of the same beliefs and and maybe departs from some others. They they might be on the same kind of plane in terms of the the mix of faith doubt or the mix of of knowledge and understanding, but because one is coming in and one is going out, there's an inherent difference between how they're treated. Yeah. And I think one of the main things I would love to see accomplished in the coming years, and, and I want to see us be a catalyst or part of that work, is to treat those coming in and those going out and those on the fence or those on the edge of the inside or the edge of the outside, just treat them all with love, equanimity, respect, patience, and and grace, right? I mean, I think... This is some of the bridge I would like to see built by 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 us and, and the church going forward. Amen. And and this is why you and I, Riley, decided to have this conversation with Shiloh and yeah. in, in this public forum to make this public because this is how we feel. This is very much a part of of peace, right? Peace at its core, I think, has to have everything to do with not otherizing people. Right. Well, and even even the kind of personal peace that comes from not needing to reconcile everything, like just just being at peace with things. That too. Yeah. Their journey is theirs. My journey is mine. Our journeys are enmeshed with each other and we can be at peace with all of it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you and I having complete creative freedom over this podcast chose of our own free will and volition to have Shiloh on to have this conversation, not so that he could set some narrative, uh, not so that we could, well, maybe maybe so that we could explain a little bit what's going on with us. And people are going to know that Shiloh has resigned from the church. They're, they're going to find out one way or the other. So we would like to set a narrative in that sense. But the narrative that we're setting here is that we can treat Shiloh and others in Shiloh's place in the same way that we would treat people, as you said, Riley, who are uh, coming in. Those who and and it's out, not a one-way road, is it? Like the way Shiloh treats us and the way Shiloh treats the, our faith community um, it is also on that same spectrum and, and, and is up for discussion, right? Like Shiloh, wouldn't you agree that that's also part of the equation? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Riley, you brought up a really good point when we were talking before recording that it's it's really giving autonomy and humanity and dignity to everybody's experiences. Because the way that I experienced resigning from the church, I know is different than the way others have resigned leaving from the church. I I seem to, ha- I feel like I went through a lot of the anger phases and the the loss of identity phases over the last five years. And so as I kind of come to this place right now, it was like the next lot. I, I've described it to a few friends, like that scene out of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the very first Pirates of the Caribbean, like the opening scene where you see Jack Sparrow up on his mast and he's all dignified and he, and he comes into port and, and all of a sudden it's, it pans out and you see he's on a little dinghy and it's sinking and he steps, he comes right up to the dock and he just, without even a step, he just steps right off onto the dock and it's, it's like, that's how I felt my journey was going. It's, it's like, whatever my, whatever I was underneath was sinking and it was going down and I was at complete peace. And it was just like, it was this logical step off for me. And that's how I experienced it. But I also know that others don't have that same kind of experience because I, I've also seen everything that goes on with Exmo TikTok. I've seen everything that I've read Exmo Reddit. I've read all those threads. I, I see them on a daily, I see them on a daily basis, but I also know that's not my same shared experience. Uh, I, I had a different, a whole different foundation. My driving force in these choices had to do with my discipleship and my connection with God through that process of kind of what has been called deconstruction, emptying, call it whatever you will. It was a moment when I came into an experience with God that I had never experienced before. And the, and ch- kind of chasing that experience was what drove everything else. Everything else is a far second to those experiences with God that I have and that I still seek for and I still chase after. And my relationship and my my views and, you know, we've talked about repentance a dozen times. I still think that the LDS Bible Dictionary definition of repentance is the best I've ever seen in that first verse when it says that it's a change of view and a mind of heart to see God differently, to see ourselves and to see the world around us. And so for me personally, I feel like I've been on a repentance process of just seeing God differently, seeing myself differently and seeing my community differently. So to answer your question again, Riley, yes, I I, I have my own responsibility about it and how I talk about the Latter-day Saint community, the respect, the dignity that I give to the people of the Latter-day Saint community to give them dignity in their own relationship. And so that's, that's really like the very first point that I, that I tell people who've messaged me like, Hey, I've heard rumors. Can you confirm that if you've uh, resigned? I'm like, yes, I have. And like, the first thing I say is, listen, this was my choice. It was the right choice for me and my family. And I, there's nothing in me that thinks that you need to follow this path as well. Like, like I, I don't look at anyone who's in the church that you're, that they're deceived that I have any greater light or knowledge. As I said, there are people who know church history. There are scholars who know church history far more than I do, who have stayed in the church, who are faithful, who are, who double down on their testimonies and double down on those narratives. And there are people on the same caliber who have left the church and there's a spectrum of in between. And so those kinds of things for me are not are not the catalyst that that drove my choices. Now, a lot of the things that we're going to find out is that I will be talking a lot about church history over the next 10 years because of my academics. 
I'm going to be in this conversation for a very long time. So I'm going to be talking about church history and there's going to be a fun way to be able, I want to build a bridge and to be able to create a community to where we can have these kinds of conversations about church history without having to try to either jump all the way into apologetics to try to defend everything from the church's side point, or to try to tear it apart from those that have have resigned or have left the church who in their trauma, or their anger or whatever, are, are want to turn around and, and bring the whole thing down, right? We see that as well. And on both sides, there's really bad scholarship. Yeah. Because it comes out of that that subjectivity, that lack of objectivity, I should say. Yeah. And that's what I really want to try to avoid. And if I'm avoiding something, I, I, that's not the conversation I want to have. I don't want to, I don't want to tear anything down. I don't want to apologize for anything. It's this other thir- third option. It's a third way that I see. So I just want to back up just a little bit. You know, you talked about your experience, um, and and we've we've been along for the ride on the Latter Day Peace Studies Come Follow Me podcast that you co-hosted with uh, Ben Peterson for the last you know year and a half or whatever, a couple of years. And you know, one of the things that I always loved about those podcasts, particularly because I'm of that that peaceful bent is that you guys found ways to read the narratives that you were um, approaching each week through the lens of peace and nonviolence. And I, I wondered, this is sort of a question for you, Shiloh. Did you feel like those viewpoints found a, a receptive audience and do you feel like space was created within the church community to be able to house and hold those column non-traditional viewpoints about interpretations of scriptures through that nonviolent lens? And did that at all impact uh, your decision to leave? Yeah, that's a really great question. So it was really interesting <laughs> having this kind of deconstruction moment while podcasting church history, come follow me. <laughs> That was a really interesting experience for me, and I will be eternally grateful for Ben. You and Ben have been friends for a long time. I have been friends with Ben for a very long time, and I just, I just, I don't have any words to really describe my 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 love for Ben. Um, it runs really deep because there were a lot of times when I would get into some of these chapters and some of this church history. I'm like, I don't even know how to deal with this. I, I don't know how to. I don't know how to sit with this. And Ben modeled for me over and over and over again what it meant to just sit down with the text and say, hey, I think I found God here. And I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even see him there. Yeah, God's there too. And so even as someone who's deconstructing from an organized religion, to be able to look at that organized religion's history and to be able to see God in that narrative and to walk that path with Ben was a really unique experience for me. Now, Ben and I talked a lot of, but a lot of times about like, were the things we were talking about with Come Follow Me, is this the actual meaning of what Joseph Smith actually meant when he said this? And we would both kind of shrug our shoulders at each other and we're like, I don't know if scholars know that. I don't know if Joseph even knew that sometimes. And, and it's, is it uh, fair to ask the question whether it matters? Because um, obviously there's the, the whole risk of, in any scripture of like, you know, taking context completely out and just... Uh, proof texting everything, but there's also great value in having personal revelatory relationships with scripture passages. I mean, that my whole uh, approach to scriptures through the Lectio Divina practice 
is to do precisely that, to have personal revelatory experiences with Scripture. Yeah, we just recorded an episode on that. In the face of, you know, starting uh, Come Follow Me this year with the Old Testament, in the face of this venerable and yet perplexing and overwhelmingly perplexing uh, text, the Old Testament, I mean, what do we do with that? And and we looked at, you know, we talked about the the critical historical scholarship. We talked about, you know, authorship, canonization, interpretation, you know, exegesis, hermeneutics, all of that. And we set it all aside in the end in favor of uh, of contemplative reading of this of this idea of Lectio Divina. And Shiloh, um, with with the Book of Mormon, just to point out a couple experiences that I, I want to share with you that came out of this experience that you and Ben shared of seeing God in the Book of Mormon. You talked about two instances which are frequently used to support ideas about violence in uh, our culture, and I guess maybe even just in Christianity in general, but particularly with the Book of Mormon, with the slaying of Laban and the the destruction that was the precursor to Jesus's second, uh, well, to his appearing to the Nephites and delivering the Sermon on the Temple. And you talked about those two instances through this nonviolent lens in such a way, and it was remarkable to witness the the personal revelatory power that was manifest. And I shared in that with you, like, I got so much joy hearing God speak through the text in a way that hadn't been revealed to me before, not because people always read it the wrong way, but because of this Again, this appeal to personal, spiritual, revelatory power that comes when we spend time uh, reading reading scriptures on our own and coming to uh, our own conclusions with the Spirit. So maybe, what was your reception to those ideas? And maybe just very briefly outline the ideas that you um, that you explained, and what was the the general reception to those ideas? Oh goodness! I don't know if I can summarize the Laban and uh, and and Third Nephi really well. I, I know our opinion on on Third Nephi differs a little bit from or differs a lot from uh, Patrick Mason's and uh, Pulsifer's take on it. They take more of a uh, a press and sprinkle approach in his book Fight. Um, to to try to answer that more generally, there's a really great book, and it's really kind of the a scholastic flagship on on scripture, like what, what is scripture anyway? Like, what is this thing scripture we're talking about and what constitutes scripture? And there's a scholar, his name is Wilfred Cantwell Smith. Um, he, his book is actually entitled, what is scripture? <laughs> it's not it's all, an excellent book. It, it really is an excellent book. And, and, you know, I had the, I had a really great opportunity of being able to get into it pretty heavily with one of the classes that I took, um, at Claremont. And he has this really fa- uh, famous opening line where he talks about how, uh, scripture is this, uh, it's basically a community negotiation. It's, it's a community endeavor. It's a community that comes together to find meaning and identity with a text. And that that meaning and identity is always in flux and it's always going to move. And the meaning of that scripture is always going to kind of change what's emphasized, what's not emphasized. And he spends the whole book giving examples about how this is done in Christian scripture, in the Bible, and he goes out into other, you know, other belief traditions and other denominations, other religions um, outside of Western civilization to show the same thing. And part of my scholarship, what I 
what I'm studying is how this manifests itself in church history, in, in Latter-day Saint church history. And in fact, a recent paper I wrote for a class, uh, for a seminary paper, was about how we unmake scripture, about how scripture is unmade and how the unmaking of meaning and identity in scripture is, is a central feature to creating meaning and identity in scripture, that, that those two things go hand in hand. And, and so I used as like, for instance, a test case, why the lectures on faith were taken out in the 1920s when they used to be canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants as, as the doctrine portion of the Doctrine and Covenants, but they were taken out without almost any explanation. And then I used as a second example, the LDS endowment and about the old whole LDS temple rituals about how those have changed over time, about how oral canon gives a utility to making changes and unmaking. And, and if we treat the temple, whole temple ceremony as scripture, it's changed. There, there's been literal changes to that whole process and it's been unmade and it's been remade and it's given new meaning and it's given, and it's given new purpose. And so- and we've all been okay with that. This isn't. This is not unbeknownst to at least all Latter Day Saints. Maybe some, right? And this happens. Yeah, completely. And, and it really is. It's this. It's this renegotiation that you mentioned. We we've been talking about. And when I say we, I mean I think all of us in the West, really, as I understand it, especially from after reading Smith himself. You know, as though scripture means a text. And originally it was really just the Bible, right? We meant the Holy Bible when we said that. And then we come into contact as we're in the fullness of times with all these other sacred traditions with their own sacred texts. And now we call them scripture. And it turns out that scripture really isn't the text themselves, but the relationship that we have with the text and with other people who have that relationship with that text in in deriving the kind of meaning that we do from it in a religious context. This is something that Latter-day Saints should intrinsically understand because of the way that we talk about Scripture. We talk about, you know, a prophet speaking from the pulpit, pulpit at General Conference or the general authorities speaking from the pulpit, the elders of the church, the uh, apostles of the church. When they speak from the pulpit with authority at General Conference, people call that Scripture all the time. They, they reference this ensign they get every month. Oh, I just got the ensign. Oh, this is this, this month's scripture, you know, because it's got the words of the prophets. They say, hey, I've got my, I got my patriarchal blessing last month. That's my personal scripture. They have all these different ways of saying this is scripture, this is scripture, this is scripture. And so it's so interesting to me and ironic even when I hear Latter-day Saints say, when they draw a boundary around what scripture is. A Bible, a Bible. We already have a Bible. <laughs> so this this is a great point you're bringing up, Shiloh, because I think what it does is it points to what is allowed and what is not allowed within the framework of LDS theology is sometimes contradictory. Because like you guys, you and Ben were exploring some really, really interesting concepts with relations uh, in relation to the Nephi-Laban uh, narrative and the the pre-Jesus coming to the Americas narrative, right? The first one being the the whys or hows or even the ifs of, of Nephi slaying Laban and what that meant. And then... The, and you weren't the only ones to do and, that. Right. Like there there are articles the from BYU studies, both, both articles that suggest that uh, either that Nephi did not slay Laban, but just told a story that he did and why, or that he did slay Laban but that in telling the story that there was that same why and that it had something to do with 
constructing a group identity, something that we've been talking about here. Yeah, royal succession, uh, origin uh, narratives, that that kind of thing. The second narrative that you tackled and came with this interpretation of a nonviolent interpretation is is the is when Jesus uh, apparently caused this this massive calamity that killed tons of people before revealing himself to the Nephites and showing systematically how that matched up with uh, previous uh, models and examples of of Satan revealing himself, the accuser prior to the revealing of Jesus as the Son of God by God himself. I remember reading the comments on social media about what I felt that I felt that was groundbreaking personally. I don't I think that was you guys on your own, right? I mean, I'm not going to hold you to this, but did you rely on anyone else's scholarship or was this unique? This approach? No, so so this was fascinating because it was Ben and I were going to record on uh 3rd Nephi 9 through 11 on it was 9, 9 through 9 through 10 or uh, I forgot what the segment was, but it was just Those are the two 11. important chapters, right? Yeah, yeah, 9 and 10, which is the destruction of the Nephites prior to Jesus coming. And I, I just didn't know how to handle it. I, I had read that thing so many times. I was so frustrated. And I woke up to a text. Ben's in, Ben's in Missouri. I'm in California. He's two hours ahead of me. I woke up to a text from him saying, hey, I have an idea. Um, what if it's not Jesus talking? And I'm like, I, I, I woke up thinking, that, that's, I don't even know how to handle that. So I talked with him um, beforehand, before we recorded. And he's like, okay, just, 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 just follow through with me. What if, what if the voice is actually Satan? And, and I was like, we can't talk about that. I'm like, that's dumb. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I pushed back on it for like 10 minutes. And he's like, well, here's a few, here's just a couple. And he gave, I think, two examples and one from Abraham. And then he gave just one there in the text. And something about that just, it was dominoes for me. And Even the first vision account, right? Where, where Joseph Smith is attacked by this, this shadow spirit prior to the revealing of of Jesus by his father. I mean, there's so many examples of this playing out the way that you guys described it. And yeah, and one thing you're you're highlighting this anxiety that caused for you was that was explicit in your podcast. I remember in the episode you guys were not <laughs> saying this is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had even agreed we weren't going to talk about it and then I was like I brought it up. And he's like, "Are we going to do this?" And I, and I think I actually edited it out of the thing. He's like, yeah. "Wait, are we actually going to do this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, let's do it." And so I think I edited that part out. But what was what's fascinating is I later went through and and I have it down on a Google Doc somewhere, some 25 different points of of showing that the, all of that voice in in Third Nephi nine and ten, that destructive voice that came and talked to the Nephites about all the cities being destroyed, matches the Satan archetype. And, and so that's, you know, that became a thing. So Ben brought it up with a couple and Ben's like, you know what, Shiloh, I, I kind of brought it up as an idea. I gave you two points. You've run with it for a very long time. <laughs> so, so we are, yeah, we argued with it on a couple different platforms on social media. And there's a lot of people who were like, wow, that's really interesting. And it, it was, it was really highly transformative, but I, but I think underlying that whole discussion with Nephi and with third and with uh, third Nephi was that Ben and I in both seasons of come follow me, we try to use what Greg Boyd called the cruciform hermeneutic. And, and this is where we, instead of using scripture to try to understand the atonement and of Christ's sacrifice, we use the Sermon on the Mount and Christ's sacrifice to then reinterpret the scripture, the rest of scripture. 
And so it's, it's, it's like we, we, we use a different process to re because a lot of the times we want to use the violence of the book of Mormon to then understanding the atonement as opposed to using the atonement to then try to see why men engage in violence and come to find out it brings out a completely different message when we use a different filter to interpret those things. And so that was, that's that renegotiation of scripture. And, and so that's one of those things that, you know, for instance, Ben has walked the nonviolent path. We've walked this path together. And and that's another thing I was going to bring up is that, um, Christopher has graciously, has graciously agreed to take over for me with Ben in, in doing Old Testament, come follow me. That actually had nothing to do with my resignation from the church. That had everything to do with the fact that I might have to actually commute down to Claremont, which is three hours away from me, uh, for my, for my, uh, my doctorate, uh, studies. And I just don't have the time to be able to do that and podcast at the same time. And so it was just a timing issue for me. I, I, I was actually really sad to have to give up to not to talk about Old Testament because I've always wanted to. But yeah, that cruciform hermeneutic is powerful. Yeah, back to the question though. The way that I felt that was received on social media, did, did you feel, let me ask you, your impression of that, did you feel like space was carved out for you to be able to express your your religious understanding and the spiritual path you wanted to walk within the church? Or did you feel like there just wasn't space for that? Um, I was shocked by how well it was received and how fast by how many people. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of space. And I think you bring up a lot of a really interesting point, Riley. And it's one that uh, I actually want to do a lot more study on because it's a phenomenon I've observed here recently. And, and that is that there's a new phenomenon going on in the church where we are starting to see different movements trying to carve out space within within the LDS theology. So for instance, there is uh, so there's a wonderful book by Blair Osler called A Queer Mormon Theology, where Blair is taking the pieces of LDS theology, taking scriptures, taking statements, to be able to kind of find a theology in the cracks of of the latter of what the latter day saint community has already already given not looking for more light knowledge to be given but to take what we already have and then to see if we can create a space to construct a, a, a queer theology and whether or not blair is successful in that or not is a, is a different point patrick mason and david pulsifer what we do at latter day peace studies we're doing the exact same thing we're finding kind of the the the, the spaces in between taking these moments, expanding them out to see if there are these spaces for this discussion to happen. I think Mason and Pulsiver did an excellent job in doing that. And it, given the fact that Deseret Book and the Maxwell Institute signed on to co-author or to co-host that book at the same time and to co-publish it, I think that says a lot to the validity of our not only our scholar, but our cultural, because Deseret Book is a cultural, uh, it's kind of got a, a heartbeat, a cultural heartbeat on the, the Mormon community. And so, and the Maxwell Institute really has a good heartbeat on the scholarly community. And the fact that that book and that message can come out in that community culturally and scholastically really says a lot about trying to create these spaces for this message. Now, we've also seen Max Hain- Maxine Hanks has done the same kind of opening up the spaces with the, with the pieces for feminism. We had books that happened prior to the 1978 message for blacks in the priesthood and for all worthy male members to have the priesthood. Um, and so we've already started to see that this is a phenomenon that happens from the bottom up, that there's this reimagining of, of theology and of scripture using the pieces of what's already here within the construct that we have. So yeah, I think that there is very much space for all of this to happen. 
you know, I can say as a as a Quranic scholar that the same thing is happening in that space, you know, in in, in Quranic studies, and I would not just say, I shouldn't say in, in Quranic studies. I mean in in Islam, right? Not in not in religious studies, but in in theology, that's happening. And you know, just last uh, episode I recorded with Ben in looking at the at the creation myths and at the at the Adam and Eve myth in the in the Genesis, right? We found uh, what I, what I found looking at those as temple texts, which again LDS scholars have already laid uh, laying a groundwork for that, a foundation for that. But we just went into that, and we brought in, of course, we had studied also uh, John Walton and and his ideas on on the on the Genesis as as a temple text, and and what I found is an ontologically equal Eve to to Adam, who is a priestess along with uh, Adam as a priest in, you know, in preserving and keeping sacred space in a temple setting. We kind of had a discussion about that uh, in the last episode that we did together, Chris, on the Divine Feminine that was interesting when talking about the temple. So these ideas are expanding. And I think what Armin Moss described in his book, The Angel and the Beehive, The Mormon Struggle with Assimilation, it's it very much describes what what the church goes through this ebb and flow these os, this oscillation of periods between what he called the angel period which is a period of retrenchment sharp boundaries high tension and peculiarity um as contrasted to the what he called the beehive periods which are more uh open and engaged with the world uh more blurred boundaries when it comes to theology and openness and low tension between leadership and and lay members when it comes to exploring theology. And so we are in this kind of, I I would call it a transitionary period because of what's happening technologically with the internet and, and information that is out there and available to everyone. The freedom to explore is there for sure. Now, whether or not the acceptance of exploration as part of one's spiritual faith journey within the Latter-day Saint Church is going to be fully accepted. I think that that verdict is still out there. Um, because it's up to us. Yeah, absolutely. It's up to, and it's up yeah. to you. Yeah. It's up to you, our listener. It really is up to us. And the reason why I bring that up at all, because it doesn't necessarily relate to Shiloh's, you know, exodus from the church necessarily. I think what it relates to is this idea that you can be on the inside while exploring these ideas that might be outside the norm, might be outside of what you you would call orthodoxy at the moment, because orthodoxy is a shifting target as well. Not only that, but you've painted a picture of faith transition, not only as personal, but as a group activity, Mm. right? As something that we're undergoing as a religion. You know, whether Shiloh is going to come to church with us anymore or not, this is where we're going. Well, but we're engaged with people that are inside and outside of our church. That's yes. the goal anyway, right? Like, Indeed. It's interesting. We, we, we all live in neighborhoods. And how often within our wards have we heard this, this urgent uh, plea from leadership to engage with your neighbors, both of those inside the church and those outside the church? Well, what that's going to take is really a complete mindset shift, a paradigm shift, where we really stop seeing other, and all we see are our neighbors, and that's that's actually using the the Christological language, you know. Who that's beatitudinal. Who, that's beatitudinal. Which one of these people is the neighbor to him who suffered? You know, it's like it's the one who served him. 
It's the one who loves him. And so once we stop this, uh, this narrative of, of otherizing people, this practice of otherizing people, then we start to see ourselves as a unit on a, on a faith journey together. And we're, we're learning from each other. And, and Shiloh, earlier you talked about this idea of bridge building and, and being in that third way, not the anti, not the, you know, tear down the church, but not also the apologist, but this third way of just saying, what brings people together? So what do you think, what's the vision for that? What does that look like, Shiloh? You know, that's a really good question. You know, what came, what initially came to mind is an experience that there's a good friend of mine who is is also on, on their own journey and and his uh, is is close to resigning themselves. And in communicating with their family, the response has been, "Well, we'll pray for you to come back, and and we'll pray for you to to join the church, and we're gonna we're gonna pray for you to to come back into our tribe, as it were." And I, I absolutely see the sincerity in that. I absolutely see the, the dignity in that. Um, but I also see that there, there might be a better way. And, and at least one possibility of a better way is to recognize of saying, you know, instead of trying to pray that someone's going to come back into your tribe, but at least praying and saying, Heavenly Father, I know that you're bigger than everything here. I know you've got this person. I know you've got this this family member of mine. I know that you're involved in their life. And and that's that really big God that I talk about. This this God that really is highly active in everybody's experience. And you know, I think it was Riley you and I had talked uh, on one of these podcasts about how my prayer shifted at one point from praying for someone else's uh praying for someone else um, as if to almost say, you know, if there's someone who's going through a really, uh, a bad problem or someone's going through some health problems or health issues and I'm praying for them, I'm like, Hey God, um, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but, uh, someone got hurt. Can you, can you go over there and, and make sure they're doing okay? <laughs> and, and as soon as I realized I was kind of praying in this way of being like, Hey, please bless them as if God wasn't already over there doing God's thing. Right. And my prayer changed so that I was I was more intentional and I would say, hey, Heavenly Father, I know you've already got this. I know you're already there, but can I please add my own intentionality? Can I please add my own my own desires and love to what you're doing? And can I be a part of what you're doing? And to include myself into God's narrative as opposed to trying to get God included into ours. And And so that's where I think a lot of this bridge building, at least from a theological point of view, can come into play. When we start to realize and to rely on God doing God and let God be God and let him do his own thing and trust God to lead those who who may have left our tribe, right? But realizing that God has them. Riley, this brings up a, a question. Can we trust God with Shiloh? Absolutely. hundred uh, percent. And I'm answering for myself. I know that was meant as a rhetorical question, but you did address it to me. So I'm going to answer. I I explicitly and implicitly trust God with Shiloh. Yeah, me too. And I trust Shiloh with God. I, I know his heart. I know Shiloh's heart. I know his wife's heart. Um, you, you can feel hurt, traumatized, broken, and all those things and still retain a deep connection with God. And I, I think I know you, Shiloh, well enough to know that you've retained that. And And that is not to say that someone who who rejects God out of hand and, and goes down that road, that God can't also handle them as well, they, that they can't also 
take care of them as well. Because I think I think that God can do that. I know God, an all-powerful God can do that as well. All I'm saying is that I know I know Shiloh's heart. Sorry, speaking about you in the third person as if you're not even there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's. Uh, it has been. It was. It's been really fascinating about this is. And Riley, in talking with before recording, you had made a really good observation when I I had said that I've only received really positive feedback from people who I've talked to. And I know that I've received more positive feedback than I think I've even given in the past when I've had friends who have resigned or walked. Because I've been on that side of the conversation my whole life. To be on this side of the conversation is a completely different experience. Um, it's not one that I'm going to be able to have practice makes perfect. I, I this is a one and done kind of a, a situ- <laughs> situation, you know, you know, maybe one day I join the church again and, and I don't know if I would ever resign again after that. But, but if that's the case, then it's like, then you have two experiences, but this is not something that is like practice is going to make perfect. I don't know. I don't know how to be able to do this through experience. And, and I know that I have not treated those who have resigned from the church with the dignity that I would hope to give them now today. And I would do things differently today. I have to say, though, Shadow, you know, I've heard a, personally, I've heard a couple of negative comments about you from people who know you less well than Riley and I do. And I think this is something we want to talk about. We talked about this a little bit pre-show, right, Riley? The idea that that when it comes to having a conversation with someone who's in Shiloh's place, right, who we know personally and who we have this personal connection with that we're much more understanding than perhaps we we are when that person is someone who's who we know less well or who we just or maybe even we're not maybe when Shiloh leaves the room would we then talk about Shiloh differently you and I wouldn't talk about Shiloh differently Riley but I mean wink wink right (laughs) 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 we wouldn't right so do, do you know what I mean Riley yeah, you know, I think this, what this does for me is it calls to mind, there, there's this, there was this survey slash study that was done within the church. There was, there was a big focus group together, put together of, of scholars and faith leaders within the Latter-day Saint church, um, therapists, uh, academics, and they got together because back in 2013 or so, they, they recognized uh, whether it was late or early or on time or whatever, it doesn't matter. They recognized this exodus. Well, it was a seven-year exodus, a seven-year mass exodus. Yeah, that was going By on. By the time right? this happened, yeah. Yeah, and and so the numbers didn't lie. And so the data that they were receiving, was everything was pointing to the fact that not only were people uh, joining the church less often. So new baptism, convert baptisms were slowing down or tapering off after many years where it was like, it seemed exponential. It was starting to taper off. So not only was that happening, but also some of the best and the brightest, this is their words, not mine, the best and the brightest of the church were leaving the church and they were perplexed as to why this was happening. And so they embarked on this very comprehensive uh, long-term study involving a large cohort of uh, former Latter-day Saints who had left the church who were willing to participate in like a, a survey, a, a response um, to this focus group. By the way, many of these survey respondents were put together by John DeLynn. So these are not people who, you know, were handpicked by the church to give the right answer. These are these were people that were largely put together by John DeLynn. And the responses, 
I, I think they were eye-opening for the, for the people who were conducting this study. And so they, what they did is they went through and they wanted to identify the factors that cause people to leave, essentially the factors of faith crisis, the structure of faith crisis, how it happens, what are the steps of faith crisis, and you know which directions could this go? And then lastly, they wanted to address, okay, what do we do about it? Like, not necessarily how do we stem the, the tide of people leaving the church, that was definitely part of it, but like, how do we treat people who decide to make this this move for themselves and their families. And to me, reading this, it's something like 100 pages, this study. I read the whole thing. By the way, it was prepa- prepared for President Uchtdorf at the time, now Elder Uchtdorf. And it was, uh, it was meant to be private, but like anything, it, it ends up in the public domain and, you know, do with it what you will at this point. Now it's public, so I want to know, you know. And, and so I read through this and I thought to myself, well, I think they've correctly identified many of the issues um, because in most cases it comes straight from the horse's mouth, which is those who had left the church giving their survey responses, very explicitly saying, this is why I left. But the most important part of all of this for me was reading the what should we do about it section. Because I think if if the church, if church members as a, as a whole read that, there would be a massive change in the way we approach and love and associate with those who decide to leave the church. I think they correctly identified the right way to do it. And I don't see us completely doing that. I see hints, which are very encouraging. But like, for instance, no one should ever feel shamed for leaving the church. We shouldn't otherize them because in most cases they have families. And what's the impact on, on the family when the person, the individual within that family who decides to leave is treated poorly? Like what's the effect on the whole family? And so anyway, your thoughts on this, guys. You, you've both read the report. Yeah, the report also mentions that, that uh, we shouldn't call them intellectually lazy. Now, it doesn't say this, I'm going to say, because that's intellectually lazy. And it's just not true, right? It's just not true. Um, there's also the I think they're the ideas like that we think that well they he he just wanted to sin. You know, yeah, one of the questions to... that come out of that is said harsh responses by loved ones, and these are some of the examples. What covenants are you breaking? You must want to sin. Who has offended you? Are you clinically depressed? You're not worthy to be a parent if you're questioning this. I must have raised you poorly. I would rather see you dead than see you lose your testimony. That's terrible. That's so terrible. Stop reading and thinking about these historical issues. Your concerns are anti-Mormon lies and are meritless. It's your own fault you're struggling. Nothing has been misrepresented. Your IQ just dropped 30 points for questioning these things. Your discontent is part of the Latter-day inner cleansing of the church. I, I get oh, emotional. I hear that one. I get emotional yeah. reading these. Like It sickens me that someone would say this to another person who's already going through so much. Instead of showing love, this is the response. It's not Christ-like. That's clear. There's a, there's a real power to reading that as a list, Riley. We don't hear all these things all at once, although sometimes multiples of these things are said to one and the same person, right? But when we read them like that, it reminds me of a book. There's a translator of the Iliad who took all of the stories of what happens to each of the warriors who dies. It's a book that, that, that many read 
as promoting martial virtue, but that it's actually an, has a nonviolent message. It's really counterintuitive, and you have to really, again, look at it closely. But this particular translator took all the stories of each person who died, each warrior who died, has a family back home, a wife back home waiting for him, you know, children. He had a a vineyard or, or, or whatever, a farm. And when you read all of those stories, taking out everything else from the narrative, you get that same power. And it reminds me also of, of the Thomas Jefferson Bible, where you take all of the teachings of Jesus and you, and you just put them all to read that. It's a shot in the arm of Jesus. You know, it takes about four hours to read through the whole thing and to just get all of the teachings of Jesus all at once. So that's on the flip side, right? That's a more positive feeling. But this idea of all these uh, men who died, we're going to personalize all of them, right, in, in the Iliad. Or this list that you read of all the things that, we, that we've said, you know, hopefully we haven't said them. Um, and, and if so, then then we ought to repent, right? But it, it just really, it's impactful. It really, it's so negative. It's so negative and it's so unchristlike and it's so unkind, really. If I could add there as far as, uh, I read the, the 2013, what I loved about the 2013 Uchtdorf report there about, about faith crisis was kind of the historiography about how we're evolving talking about this. And and it shows that the the brightest, the best scholars who are really having a a an intentional moment with not just seeing how we're hemorrhaging, but in in creating. And I love what you brought up there, Riley, about the humanizing effect of seeing those who have resigned from the church, and then how to treat them as a as a Christian community. How do we treat those who have? How do, because if this is the truth, if this is the the true flock, then the one that leaves. How do we ostracize the one that leaves, right? And so even when you take the positionality uh, of a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, looking at those who have left, how do you respond to the one that leaves and that one sheep? And how much are we feeding the sheep versus killing the sheep? And and how much does that allow to become our community? And and as I said, I, I get the being in the position for 20 years of having friends who have resigned from the church, I know, I know intimately those feelings. And I also know that I've, I haven't been very good with, with how I've responded with that over the years. And I've gotten better at it the more that I, the Sermon on the Mount really helped me in a lot of ways, right? And so, and so we have these issues. One thing that I, I do want to bring up, though, is this idea of a crisis of faith. And I know there's been a lot of really fascinating, there's been a lot of really good scholarship that's talked about it. But one of the things that we that it might be good for us to think about in the future, as far as this bridge building is concerned, is to recognize the what is interpreted or what is seen as crisis of faith and to see if that's a correct definition of what's going on. Because a crisis of faith really, in the culture, what it does is it assumes that the church and God are really the same thing, are, are one and the same thing. And and I know there's a lot of Latter-day Saints who are going to who who are going to believe that. Well, like when you say that, they're like, yeah, it's God's church. This is one and the same thing. But to I know many other faithful Latter-day Saints who would be able to understand the distinction made by that statement that these are two different things. The church is an institution. God is God. It, it it's a completely different thing. Even if it is God's church, they're not the same one and the same thing. And what has happened inadvertently, and I and I know this from from my own experience, and I know this from many other experiences, I had a crisis of meaning. I did not have a crisis of faith. 
I happened to read early on and I've lent the book out. I went to go get the quote and have the quote ready and I realized I had lent my book out. But it's James Fowler, Stages of Faith, and it's a very famous book. Um, and, and he identifies early on the differences between faith and belief, and that this is a very important distinction to make, that a lot of the times we make faith and belief be the exact same thing. And so when we talk about it and we come up to someone, hey, what, you know, what's your faith or what faith do you belong to? What we're asking is, what denomination do you belong to or what do you believe? And so we we use this kind of colloquially where we use faith and belief interchangeably. And and that's highly problematic because what happens is when we equate a faith crisis in this manner where the church and God are the same thing, then what happens is people actually think they're losing their faith in God because they're they're having these questions about the church. And what's fascinating is that more than not Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when they resign from the church, they become more agnostic or atheist than usually to their typical Christian counterpart who's deconstructing at the same time. And so the question is, is why? And, and there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this question, but one of the observations that I've made over the years is that it, it fundamentally comes down to this, this inability for us to be able to pull apart this crisis of faith. What is at best going on is that people are having a crisis of belief in the church. They are not having a crisis of faith in God. And what's happened is we've inadvertently, by calling it a faith crisis in the church, we've inadvertently given people a faith crisis to God, so that when they leave the church, they also leave God. And, and, and so there's this, there's this problem that we have. And so when Fowler, he talks about it as he says, listen, belief is this thing that is the adherence that you think that reality exists in a certain way, that this propositional statement is true or that reality exists in a certain way. That's your belief. And this is assent. It's a question of assent. Yeah. Yeah. I assent to this proposition. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I can, I can list off my beliefs. You know, I, I can give the articles of faith maybe. Exactly. And, and and that's a really good example that I'm, I'm coming to. Be, but faith, on the other hand, if you ask someone what their faith is, you are perhaps asking them the single most intimate question you can ask them about themselves. Because faith, in the, in at least in Fowler's context, is the most intimate, central characteristic of their entire life. It, it's the thing within us that causes us to act. It's the thing that gets us up out of bed every morning right? It's the thing that even causes us to put one foot in front of the other. And I think there's even a lot of Latter-day Saint history that can justify this because we even have Joseph Smith or whoever, Sidney Rigdon in the lectures on faith that say that faith is the first principle of action. Right. It's the organizing principle, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. It's creative. Yeah. For years as a philosophy professor teaching ethics, I gave this definition, which was given to me by my mentor, uh, who was my professor, who I think, uh, I don't remember if you had him too, uh, Shiloh and I, we studied philosophy at, at BYU together, uh, who, who was Michael Arts, which is that faith is acting in the present for the sake of an envisioned future. It's because we believe, if I do this, then this will happen, that we act. And that's what, that's what is faith. That's what, means, uh, what faith means. Yeah, I've got to, I want to go down this road. I think you make an excellent point and I want to explore the implications of it because what if we were to change our vernacular completely to, to accommodate this idea, which I think is very valid that we, we all too often overlap the idea of church with God as if they're one and the same. I agree with that. Um, 
if we were to somewhat decouple those and say that the church is an institution, it may be pursuing God, it may be, it may be aiming at God, and it may even be directed by God, but it's not God. If, as a result of somewhat decoupling those two from each other, and we change the vernacular to, instead of a faith crisis, what if we did call it a crisis of meaning? What would the implications of that be? If I were to say, man, I'm really having kind of, I'm having a crisis of like meaning right now. If I were to say that to someone, maybe they wouldn't freak out and say, oh, he's getting ready to leave the church. He's getting ready to leave God and become an atheist now. Like, what would be the implications? Yeah, meaning has to be negotiated. And we remember when we had Janice Spangler on, right? She said, this is not, we're not talking about a crisis of faith. We're talking about a faith transition. And all of us at all times are in faith transition. You and I don't believe, Riley, in the same way uh, as the other. And we also don't believe, and this is what really to the point, right? We don't believe in the same way that we used to believe. And as a scholar, especially as a religious scholar, I don't believe in the same way that I used to believe before I was a religious scholar. I don't believe in the same way that, that my wife believes, who is not a religious scholar. And, and there's such a thing as, uh, what is it called? Um, there's this website, I think Dan Peterson put it together, uh, Scholars Testify. Because there's a question, even my first philosophy professor, who's a Christian, asked me, how can you, and he, it wasn't because he doubted, he couldn't understand how I could, I, how could I, but he wanted to, ha- to offer his students, his current students, an answer from me, a former student and a Latter-day Saint. How can you be a philosopher and believe in God? And by the way, another, another question that he asked that was more personal, this wasn't for him to share. It's like, do you really believe in a Satan, this equal and opposite force that's an actual personified character? you know, because I think he doesn't, you know, and so he's asking me, do you really believe in that? And, you know, I have a very nuanced way of thinking about that too. And that's something that's come up on this podcast too. And actually, I think we've we've planned to talk about this, right? We want to have an episode on Satan. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. (laughs) And we we want to have Shiloh back for that conversation. What a coincidence. We invited Shiloh back (laughs) to have a conversation about Satan. (laughs) That's right. He knows all about Satan. Now, and the fact is, when 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 you when you approached me about this, uh, doing an episode on, on Satan, Riley, I said, "Well, yeah, we've we've got to do that. It's, it's overdue, and we've got to have Shiloh back on for that." We already had planned on having this episode with Shiloh, and we definitely want to have you back for that, Shiloh, because I know that you've put a lot of time into thinking about this and studying it. I, when I say I've never seen as many books on uh, on the Beatitudes as on on. Uh, <laughs> I know where you're going with this. Shelves. Yeah. I've never seen as many books on Satan. And I don't think this is because he's more focused on Satan than on the Beatitudes. I know he's been curious <laughs> in reading about both. But because there just are more books and because and because we've conflated Satan and the devil and the serpent and Lucifer. And there's a lot to talk about. But we'll, we'll have to come back to that on an, in another episode. Yeah. Well, I just think if we were to change the way that we talk about these things, we could actually have productive conversations instead of putting people in camps automatically. It's like, oh, faith crisis or anti-Mormon or ex-Mormon or on the fence or whatever. Like instead of labels, let's let's use language that helps us have discussions like we're having right now. I mean, Shiloh, you're no longer a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Chris and I are. And yet we're having, I think, a very productive conversation about this crisis of meaning that you experienced and maybe as how that relates to other people going through a similar experience. And 
how do we how do we deal with that? Like we're having a conversation about that that I think is productive. And those who are not too, right? Sure. As neighbors. Yeah, I, these kinds of conversations not only can happen, but they are happening. They're happening right now, right? And as those who listen to this episode can listen back to it, they can listen to this conversation over and over again. And, you know, going back to this faith and belief construct, I know it's difficult in in the, the history of the church, especially when we have 13 articles of faith that almost all of them begin, we believe. Right. So we, we have this that's kind of written into our, our theological DNA. And I'm glad I, you brought that up, Shiloh. <laughs> so it's, yeah, because it, I said, right, the, our beliefs are these, right? And, and yet we call them articles of faith. And they're just propositions that we assent to, that we believe in. That's not faith. That's not my faith. So I would really promote that for those who are listening, who, who believe that they're having a crisis of faith, or who believe they're struggling with their faith, or they believe their faith is hard, I would propose a possibly a different way of looking at it. And that way is that there's nothing wrong with your faith. That it's, it's in fact that your faith is so intact that that core motivation and that core essence of your humanity, that thing that causes you to act, is so strong that it's allowing you, if, if even subconsciously, to be able to push the limits of the things in which you know. It's actually causing you to repent. It's, it's bringing you into an, a new awareness of seeing God differently, of seeing yourself differently, of allowing yourself to even see the world differently. That that thing which, you, which has been labeled a, faith is, a crisis of faith or a faith crisis is in fact the very opposite of that. If at best it, it might be a crisis of belief in an institution, a history, or a narrative, but it's not a crisis of your faith. If you are struggling, I propose, it's because you're growing. It's because there's a transition. It's because there's great things on the horizon. And that when we begin to see it in those terms, and we begin to see these moments of, of, of struggle, I get the struggle. When we see the crisis of meaning come up, and, and just like Christopher said, and, and Riley, even, and you're saying, when we see these things happening, we don't have to label it in a way of fear that someone is going to leave. I think one of the things that... There, there are a thousand things I can say that I absolutely love about, about the church and about the church culture. One of the things that I'm just like, ah, we could do so much better is to not be afraid of being deceived. That fear of deception, that fear of being lied to, that fear of something leading us away from, I think needs to stop. And it's, it's this thing that we need to have true and correct beliefs. And if we don't have the absolute true and correct beliefs. And trust. Oh, and trust. And tr well, right. Yeah. I mean, faith, you know, by the way, the word that's usually translated faith in the scriptures from the Greek in the New Testament, at least, is pistis, right? Which actually means trust. There's a book, I heard about it on the Maxwell Institute podcast years ago by Peter Enns called The Sin of Certainty. And I don't remember the exact subtitle, but it's something like why God wants our trust more than our correct belief. We're so worried about correct belief. Um, when really what God wants is our trust that, and we can trust God. We can trust God with Shiloh. We can trust God with our doubts. Another idea that, you know, as we're talking about doubt that comes to my mind, and this may deserve an episode of its own too, this idea of doubt is, I remember the Ted talk of Leslie Hazelton, the doubt essential to faith. Doubt is a part of faith. There is no faith without doubt, because as we've been taught as Latter-day Saints, if we know then we don't need faith. 
If we have a perfect knowledge, we don't require faith anymore. So if we have faith, that means we don't have a perfect knowledge. Alma 32 says the same thing, right? That yeah. Faith goes dormant when you have perfect knowledge. So who has that kind of perfect knowledge, that certain? And to claim certain that we I. do have it is is kind of arrogant. Let's let's be on it, right? So if I, we don't right. So if we don't have perfect knowledge, then we have faith, and that means we also have doubt. They're two they're two sides of the same coin. So one thing you started doing, Shiloh, that I, I want to kind of build on, and, and I know we're clear past our, our normal hour that we spend, but I think this is a really important episode. We need to just talk it through. One thing you started to do was you were modeling a conversation that didn't include the phrase, you're losing your faith. I wonder what it looks like if we make that normative. If, if that becomes the norm, what does that start to look like? You know, then all of a sudden, instead of reinforcing someone's belief that they're losing their faith, and by the way, the the main tenet, even within our own um, articles of faith, is is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So by not reinforcing that accusation that someone is losing their faith, in brackets, in Jesus Christ, we can start to have a more nuanced conversation about what is causing anxiety? What is causing distress? And I'm not saying this from the standpoint of like, how can we, how can we, you know, save these people from leaving and keep them in the church? I'm saying this just from the perspective of not otherizing again, back to this idea of a community of Christ, a larger community of Christ. And that is if you can have open conversations about these issues, about what is causing distress, what is causing anxiety, then then it starts to change everything. Like there's no otherizing anymore. All of a sudden, everyone's part of this community. And I'd like to add to that because we actually, as we're recording this and we talked about this pre-show, actually, I don't think I talked with you about it, right? I talked with, I talked with Shiloh about this as we were waiting for you. You know, we, there are two ways that we can name this episode. And sometimes we name an episode ahead of time and it gives us a frame for the conversation. Here we have the pot, and who knows how this is, how you're going to find this as as the as the listener named, but there's a sense in which this conversation is a continuation of our conversation with Janice Spangler on faith transition, on crisis of belief instead of crisis of faith, and there's also a sense in which this is a conversation in the framework of planned episodes that we've actually talked about Riley on this on this podcast of being able to to talk with you know as a bridge building conversation, whether it be with a Muslim, with a Buddhist, and we hadn't thought of it yet, but why not with an ex-Mormon, right? So this this conversation actually fits in both. It, it can be titled either way, and it remains to be seen at the, at the time we're talking about it, how it will be. Yeah, I, I guess I would, and this isn't to criticize at all, but I guess, and I need to do this as well, stop using that term ex-Mormon and maybe come up with something that more correctly identifies where they're at, you know, um, as, a, as a member of the Christian community, not of our denomination. Or, you know, it's just a way to talk about this that starts to add more neighborliness to the whole conversation between people. I like that. Yeah. I, I, felt, I feel like here, uh, like I've mistaken and, you know, because this is a public conversation, you know, as as friends, I could say that, and yet in a public conversation, I like that you called me out on that, Riley. 
Well, it's me Thank too. You. I think I've done it in this conversation. I need to not do that. It's something I just need, I want to be more aware of because if we are truly going to expand this conversation into the the full community of the world and and involve people from other faith traditions or uh, you know other denominations within Christianity or just under the whole tent of belief and religion in general, we have to start making our language a reflection of the of the desire we have for that oneness, right? It has to reflect that. Hey, I have an idea. What would you like to be called, Shiloh? Does it make sense to ask Shiloh Riley? That would have been that would have been the easy way to go about that. <laughs> yeah. This is part of you, a wider Do you even know, Shiloh, too, what you want to be called? What identity? What what box do I want now? Yeah. Um what's your new no, identity? <laughs> what's my what's my new identity? You know, it's it's funny. I was talking with Rachel about it because there was no good word that I had found for for my experience in in my in my positionality now and my directionality. F- f- having been with the church and and Rachel found the word demit and and demit has this connotation where it's a uh, it's something that an organization can do to resign you from that organization there's also a way of talking about it where you honorably resign from an organization um and, and that was just that was just one so have i resigned from the church have i demitted have i honorably resigned um have I, have I left? You know, there's this idea of leaving and it's like, is there a leaving? And so it's like, what verb is the transition? Because at, at some point in this, I want to be respectful for my friends, for, for my community that I, I've cherished my memories. There are so many cherished memories that have given me over the years, the friendships, the, the experiences that I want to honor and those community. And to say that I'm an ex, you know, because Riley, you don't want to say he's an ex-Mormon because then you're defining a person by the former community. And you don't want, and I don't want to say that, uh, to to do that, that I left this because it's, what am I actually leaving? Am I leaving the friendships, the fellowship? What am I leaving? And have I, have I transitioned or have I transformed? Because then that leaves kind of in a state where the other person is still a, a caterpillar, but I'm the butterfly. And it's like, that's not it either. Like that hasn't. Well, but we're all transitioning at all times. There is still that problem of that perception. I get that. But I just want to point out again that we really are all, if you look into your own heart, you realize that you're in transition from day to day, from year to year. And, and, you're, and you're making progress in some sense. Yeah. Well, can we take any instruction at all from the secular world in this? I, I, as we're talking, I'm just sort of thinking about the professional world, right? We we all have our jobs. We earn well. I don't know if you do, Shiloh. You're <laughs> you're a full time student now. You earn no income. I don't think. I don't know. Maybe you no. do. <laughs> but um, but you know, all of us are at least in jobs or pointing towards jobs or like the whole purpose of of this work thing is 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 jobs. It's to earn money and support our families, whatever. So we all participate. I don't have a job either, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah, Gosh, I'm dang, a full time student example. too. <laughs> all right. I have I think a job. It's on point, though. That's the thing is we're <laughs> no, trying to no, put let, people in boxes, right? No, but this is this is the point I want to make. Maybe we can take some instruction from that secular professional world and say, you know, lately my company, the company I work for, has had several really good high-profile people that have that have left. They've resigned, and they've gone to work for other institutions, other financial institutions. And man, it's rough. It's like, oh, these are such good people. 
And it's it's so hard to see him go. And I even fell into the trap. We were sitting in a big Zoom call and someone announced that so-and-so had, had was leaving the company. And I was like, oh, you know, clutching my pearls and like, why, you know? Why didn't we try to retain them? Why didn't we da 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 da? And I was searching for all these reasons why they left the company. And I'm like, now that I think about that, I'm like, how is this any different than we <laughs> than we treat people? Here's the difference. When she decided to leave, everyone was like, and and after she kind of explained the whys and you know the rationale behind her decision to leave, everyone was like, oh man, we wish you the best. We want nothing but the best for you. Whereas you go down that list that I read about 10 minutes ago, filled with invective and anger and harsh accusations. Can you ever imagine in a professional setting, someone saying, well, I'm leaving the company and I'm going to go work for this competitor. I just got a really good offer and they're giving me professional advancement. It just suits me. It's just the right decision for me as an individual and for my family. Can you imagine someone saying, oh yeah, well, F you then get out of here. You must be a horrible person. Like, <laughs> like it just makes no sense. And so all I, all I want to say is we can do that on a professional level where there's no talk of Jesus. And yet, as soon as we start talking about Jesus and we, and Jesus is part of this conversation, the greatest irony is that when people leave our, our denomination, we treat them totally unchristlike, whereas we treat them way better in the professional world. I just think that's totally ironic. And maybe we should take a lesson from how we would interact with a former employee and say like, oh man, we want nothing but the best for you. Please stay in touch. Hey, let's go to lunch when you get settled. You know, like there's all these, these things that we do when someone leaves the company that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't even think to do when someone leaves our denomination. So maybe we just need to think differently about this. There's too much identity wrapped up in it, basically. Yeah, and, and that's really the last thing, the last thing that I, I think I'll have to say about it is simply that the common denominator that I've seen underlying so many reasons for, for an exodus from, a church, from the church, um, whether or not someone was offended, whether or not it's church history, whether or not it was... One of the, the main common, common denominators that I, I see here is that something happened that shook someone's core meaning and identity. And in, in that core and identity, it's, it's finding something new, finding meaning. And that's that negotiation we were talking about with scripture before, finding meaning and identity and that negotiation with community. And once we start to see that renegotiation with the community, we can start to, to see, and I think Riley, your point's excellent with, uh, with the professional community. We do these things already. Why can't we do this with our religious community? So, Yeah. So thank you for having me on, you guys. I've I've greatly appreciated it. My family, my family's doing very well. For those I've been asked quite a bit, uh, my family's very very happy. We're we're thriving. N- nobody's crying themselves to sleep. Um, we've all been we've all been. This has been a very blessed moment and experience for for all of us. And I and I very much appreciate the support of the communities that that I'm in, and for your support and for everyone's love. And I I know. I happen to know there are a few few who are still struggling with with this knowledge in the news, and and I encourage anyone to reach out for me personally. Um, if if you're struggling with me personally, I'd love to talk with you. If you are struggling with your own crisis of belief, crisis of meaning, transition, whatever we want to call it, I'm, I know each and every one of us here would love would love to sit down and talk with anyone. And I don't think any one of us, I'm not going to encourage anyone to leave the church. I'm not going to encourage anyone to stay in the church. 
I'm all about finding that, that relationship and that peace and love with God. And I know people who find that in the church. And if you find that in the church, stay. Stay and double down on it and be there with God and find your way and find that community and do it. And if there is a way to that you need to be able to step away from the church to do that as well, I support that as well. So Not only that, but Shiloh, I've known Shiloh personally for a long time. You're just such a good listener naturally it's just who you are and then you know when it comes to the when it comes to the beatitudes i mean shiloh walks the talk and so when i've had complaint and this has nothing what i'm saying here has nothing to do with the church if i've had any complaints or any heartache or anything that i've gone to shiloh with he's just listened and he's mourned with me thank you shiloh i love you you know my last comment uh that i want to make is is coming back to this sort of this idea that started it all for you and and really continues to be the thing that can be that bridge for us. And that is identity, shedding identity, the emptying, you know, that first of the, whether you call it eight Beatitudes or nine or whatever, that first of the Beatitudes is to, is to empty yourself. If we can find the humility to do that, to be willing to empty ourselves in that space, we can rediscover Christ-like love. Shedding identity doesn't mean you have to give up being a member of the church. Doesn't mean you have to give up your testimony of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean you have to give up even your belief in doctrines. All it means is that you don't take personally when someone else makes a decision for what is best for that person, for themselves, we, we don't take that personally. Why should we? It's not our identity. It's not their identity. It's, it's just a decision to do what's best for them. If we can shed identity, I believe in improving of relationships will take place as a result, and that individuals can come together regardless of the boundaries that might be apparent. And I hope that's the case with us. I know it will be. I mean, we're tight. Uh, I want to echo what Christopher said, Shiloh, I love you. I, I am so grateful for your example. It, the things that you've taught me um, about the Beatitudes and, and you know, expanded my understanding of my Savior who I love, it, it causes me to know for a surety that you also love that Savior, you know, because by transference, you've communicated that love to me and I feel that love of our Savior. And so I thank you for that. And uh, I just, I want to reflect the love of Christ back to you. And thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate that. And I love, I love you both. And I really look up to your examples and in each one of you in such unique ways has, has impacted and affected my own life. And, and it, it really is a testament to the power of all these principles that we talk about with, with the Beatitudes, with the Sermon on the Mount and, and that transformative power in our lives that it, it, I don't see the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as this directionality that you you end up in a particular place, but it's that as you walk that path of discipleship, you find a way of supporting and just sitting with each other. And and I know that both of you have sat with me in my own my own meaning, and and my own transitions, and and I'm very grateful for that. So thank you. Well, we're gonna wrap it up right here, giving Shiloh the last word. Um, you deserve that. You deserve to have the last word on your own journey, your own contemplative journey of faith. And uh, we would encourage 
those who are listening to reach out to their neighbors, regardless of denomination, and let's start building bridges. Let's let's impart the love of Christ to our neighbors of any denomination, of any religious background, and start building this Zion we talk about. Amen. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great weekend.